0: Hello, relatively prime listeners. This is your host, Samuel Hansen. I just wanted to let you know that this episode was recorded live in Denver, Colorado at the 2020 Joint Mathematics Meetings. And there was a bit of an issue with the recording. That issue being that about the first half of the show didn't end up being recorded properly. Thankfully, though, that first half of the show was only me talking. So what you are going to hear is me re-recording the bits that I did. And then we will go in to the actual live bit of the recording where I am talking to other people. So really, it all worked out. But that's why there's going to be a little bit of a shift in audio quality and crowd noises about halfway through this episode. But I promise you, it's a fun one. So without further ado, let's get to it. This is Relatively Prime, truthiness in the mathematical domain. I am your host, Samuel Hansen. So truthiness was this idea that was originally put forward by Stephen Colbert on his show The Colbert Report. And really what it is trying to mean is this idea of something that we feel should be true, but isn't? Or maybe it's this idea of the stories that we tell without actually fact-checking it. Really, it can mean a lot of things. What I'm trying to get it to mean here on this episode is this idea of the myths of mathematics that we all share without really knowing whether or not they are fully true or that we know aren't true, but still tell because we think they are good stories. And we got some of those, we definitely got some of those to share with y'all today. But before we get into that part, there's another bit of truthiness that I want to talk about. Specifically, we are here recording live in Denver, Colorado. This amazing city of the Mountain West that is growing and has all sorts of people moving into it, but it also has a history, a history that we do not talk about enough. And that history, that history is that we are recording this live podcast on the occupied land of the Arapaho and Cheyenne nations, land that was taken finally through violence in the Sand Creek Massacre. Also, Colorado is the current headquarters of the Southern Ute and Mountain Ute tribes. And if we are going to talk about the real truth behind the history of mathematics, I think it's important that we take a moment to really think about the real truth of the land that we are doing that on. Okay. So now, for our first story of truthiness, I want to bring us back to my first ever abstract algebra course and a certain young French mathematician. Poor Galois, poor, poor Galois, I heard this refrain many times in my Introduction to Abstract Algebra course when I was an undergraduate. Our professor was very sorrowful over and very taken with The story of this romantic young French mathematician whose genius was not recognized and celebrated by those around him, and consequently, he got sucked into radical politics, which led him to dying too young in a politically motivated duel that somehow also had to do with the honor of a woman who may or may not have been of ill repute, but not before spending his last night furiously writing down the mathematics, which would build the foundation of the theory which would eventually bear his name. And my professor was teaching to all of us. All while scribbling over and over again in the margins, I have not the time. I have not the time. And really, how could one not be taken with this story? It has everything that we could possibly want. Political maneuvering, doomed romance, violence, death, and most importantly, most importantly, mathematics. I was certainly taken with it when I heard about poor, poor Galois in that classroom. Since then, I've run into a few different variations on the Galois story. My favorite is that the Crown decided Galois' republicanism had gone too far and used a woman agent provocateur to lure him into this duel over her honor in order to remove him from the political picture. All the stories do seem to agree on a few things. That there was a duel, that it was definitely about politics and maybe about a woman, that Galois was a misunderstood genius whose work was not recognized by the mathematical establishment. In fact, they actively worked against him. That this lack of acceptance drove him into a life of radical politics, which eventually led to Galois being arrested and jailed multiple times, and to that duel which took his life at too young of an age. And that Galois spent the night before that duel putting his groundbreaking mathematical thoughts to paper. And I should note that these are stories which are being published in major works of mathematical history. But there is something very important missing from most of these stories of poor, poor Galois. The truth. We know this thanks to Tony Rothman, And the article, Genius and Biographers, The Fictionalization of Ever-East Galois, which was the main source for this story. And since there's a lot of the story of Galois that I'm not going to have time to share with you today, if you find yourself interested, you should really check out Tony's article. It's impeccably researched and incredibly well-written. Instead of sharing the whole story, I'm going to try to stick to parsing out the truth of those things which the stories of Galois all seem to contain. But before we get to that, I'm just going to let you know there's a lot of French words coming up, and I don't speak French, so I'm very, very sorry about all of the mispronunciations that you're about to have to endure. So let's start with the idea that Galois was a misunderstood and not at all accepted mathematical genius. In the stories about Galois, these ideas are illustrated by a few main points. That Galois twice failed his entrance exam for the École Polytechnique, and had to settle for the École Normale, which was a huge disappointment for Galois. That Cauchy lost or threw out one of Galois's first papers, instead of delivering it to the French Academy of Sciences that his submission to the grand prize of mathematics was also lost, and that Poisson did not understand and therefore rejected another publication that Galois submitted to the academy. Now, it's fair to say that all of this rejection did leave Galois very jaded and feeling as though the world was against him. That much is clear from his writings, where he once put to paper, I tell no one that I owe anything of value in my work to his advice or encouragement. I do not say so, because it would be a lie. If I addressed anything to the important men of science or of the world, and I grant the distinction between the two at times is imperceptible, I swear it would not be thanks. I owe to important men the fact that the first of these papers is appearing so late. I owe to other important men that the whole thing was written in prison, a place, you will agree, hardly suited for meditation, and where I have been dumbfounded at my own listlessness in keeping my mouth shut at my stupid, spiteful critics." And I think that I can say spiteful critics in all modesty, because my adversaries are so low in my esteem. It is important to remember that Galois was only 20 at this point, and to put not too fine a point on this, had been through some stuff, some of which I will share with you in just a bit. So these were the words of essentially a jaded youth who felt misunderstood and underappreciated. Putting things in that perspective, I'm surprised that those words were as kind as they were. But it is fair to say that Galois, and many of those who have written about him, did not bother to take the full story of all of this into account. To do so would be to understand that the first time Galois tried to get into the polytechnic it was a year early and without the course of mathematics most who attempt the entrance exam take and the second was just days after his father committed suicide following a crown aligned priest writing malicious letters about their family and signing galwas father's name to them no shame in not passing the exam in either case but those failures also do not require any conspiracy against Galois to happen. Neither do the incidents with Galois's mathematical work in the French Academy. The first with Cauchy happened due not to Cauchy losing the work, but to him getting sick when he was supposed to present it. And there's a lot of evidence that Cauchy appreciated and even encouraged Galois. The grand prize work fell through the cracks when the chair Fourier died during its judging. And Poisson did not reject Galois' work because he was incompetent or working against Galois, but instead because he felt the work didn't show enough rigor, a charge that had been leveled against Galois' writing a few times before this. And Poisson said that a more complete set of writing showing the whole theory would be welcome. So, No conspiracy of stupid and unappreciative people are needed to explain the failures and coincidences which riddled Galois' short life. So how about the charge that they drove him to radical politics? It almost works. If you completely ignore the timeline. By the time of the coincidences and failures, Galois had already started down the path of French republicanism. And having his work accepted would not have changed that. The stories of Galois' life as a member of the artillery of the National Guard, threatening the king with a toast and a knife, and walking around Paris armed to the teeth are fascinating. But we don't have time to go deep into them. So instead, let me quote Rothman. He was behaving dangerously in a dangerous time. As for Galois' radical Republican politics being the cause of the duel which took his life, well, it's just another example of the people who told the stories which have stuck, either ignoring evidence or making it up in its absence. First of all, the person who has been named as the person who fired the shot that killed Galois, Peshaw de Urbanville, was also a Republican. And second, Rothman found correspondence from Galois that stated, I would like to have given my life for the public good. Forgive those who kill me, for they are of good faith. And it seems fair that Galois would have thought dueling against political enemies as giving his life for the public good, and that his predilection toward paranoia about people who should be on his side would mean that if it was a political disagreement with a fellow Republican that had led to his death, he would not have said they were of good faith. On the other hand, Rothman was able to unearth evidence that there was a woman involved, though not the woman of ill repute many of the stories contain. Instead, it was Stephanie Dumotel, the daughter of a physician. There does seem to have been some sort of relationship between them, and it does seem that Galois reacted rather strongly to something she said about a slight against her, and this likely led to the duel. So, we have covered the mathematical establishment and their not-real vendetta against Galois, how he came to his radical Republican politics honestly, and not because he wasn't accepted by said establishment, and how those politics were not the cause of the duel. That means we are left with that fateful night before the duel and Galois furiously scribbling down his great work before he passed. Let's first state what is true about that story. Galois did write the night before he died, and some of it was about mathematics. That writing even included the words I have not the time. That's really about it, though. To tell the truth, the stories of Galois should say that he had been writing about what would be called Galois theory for three years before the duel. Much of that writing had already been published by the time of his death, and that which had not been published had mostly already been written. This includes the work rejected by Poisson. The night before the duel, Galois did make some annotations and corrections to that work, one of which read, There are a few things left to be completed in this proof. I have not the time. Open parentheses. Author's note. Close parentheses. That is the only time I have not the time appeared in the notes Galois penned that fateful night. He did manage to get in another dig at Poisson, though, for good measure. This proof is a textual transcription of that which we gave for this lemma in a memoir presented in 1830. We leave as a historic document the above note which Monsieur Poisson felt obliged to insert, to which Galois again added the coda, open parentheses, author's note, close parentheses. Not exactly the stuff of legend, is it? author puts final touches on the work of years before possible death sounds more like sensible planning than the romantic notion of a misunderstood genius racing the clock to make sure his groundbreaking ideas outlived him. It is easy to understand why these stories of Galois continue to spread, even though they have been rather thoroughly debunked at this point. They are more exciting and provide a less complicated picture of Galois for us to venerate. It's much easier to fall for a genius whose unfair treatment led him down a path which cut his life short and took from us the breakthroughs he inevitably would have produced, instead of a temperamental young man who had brilliant ideas but wasn't the best at communicating them and actively chose to put himself in dangerous situations which eventually led to his death. Making Galois the victim of circumstance, instead of an equal participant in the events of his life, may be romantic. But it's also dishonest, and ultimately unfair to the complicated young man whose theory is now taught to mathematicians around the world. So the next time you hear someone say, poor Galois, poor, poor Galois, remember this and help them more fully understand Galois' story in a way that honors the Algebrist by giving him the autonomy so many of the stories have tried to strip. And now, let us go to the actual properly recorded in Denver part of this live podcast, and we will start with my guest, mathematical historian, faculty member at Quest University, Glenn R. Van Brumlin, I started by asking Glenn to please tell me the story that is most commonly told about where the decimal point came from.
1: The the common story that's out there is that the decimal point, or at least decimal fractional notation, started in the late 16th century. And the person that's usually associated with it, his name was Simon Steven, a Dutch mathematician. Because, of course, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, I'm Dutch, of course. (laughs) Um, and he invented a rather awkward system of notation where if you want to represent the number 5.238, what well, we would write that way, he would write five and then a zero with a circle around it to indicate it's the whole number, then a two and a one with a circle around it to indicate that the two stood for tenths and so on and so forth. Um, that system lasted for about a hundred years through the 17th century, but then at the about 8 years after steven there was another mathematician astronomer whose name was christopher clavius who out of the blue 8 years afterwards we suddenly find him using what we would recognize as a decimal point in his work on astronomy clavius was not a progressive person he was he was very much in favor of the ancient greeks in fact he's most famous now for defending Ptolemy against Copernicus, one of the last people to do that. Um, and so all of a sudden we find this table in Christopher Cla- Clavius in 1593 that has the decimal point, and it gets transmitted to people like Kepler and John Napier, the inventor of logarithms and so on. And over the 17th century, there's, there are all sorts of competing notations, and eventually Clavius's notation wins, but not until about the year 1700. And that's the story that you'll read in textbooks. OK,
0: so uh, what's the real story?
1: <laughs> um, this this was a bit of a shock in my research. I actually, my, my research is in ancient and medieval astronomy. Um, and so I wasn't expecting, even a year ago, to have anything to do with this story. Um, But I have been working on the work of a 15th century astronomer you've never heard of called Giovanni Bianchini. Now, you've heard of Copernicus. Tell me you've heard of Copernicus. Okay. Copernicus lived around 15, in the 1540s thereabouts. He relied for his astronomy on an astronomer who'd lived in the previous century whose name was Reggio Montanus. Well, Reggio Montanus was the dominant figure of the time, but it turns out that not everything Reggio Montanus did was original to him. Um, the concept of copyright and plagiarism was a little bit different back then. In fact, um, a lot of what Reggio Montanus did in astronomy he actually got from this relatively obscure Italian astronomer, Giovanni Bianchini, uh, which I've been discovering over the last year or two. We know about Reggio Montanus partly because he had the good fortune to have his works printed. The printed book started to happen a little too late for Bianchini. So people knew about Reggio Montanus. They hadn't been aware of Bianchini. So I thought it might be interesting to study him. And so I was turning through these manuscript pages. They're not printed. They're handwritten. Um, and at one point, I turned a page, and he uh, could have knocked me over with a with a feather because there it was in this table. It was Clavius's table, but it was 150 years earlier than Clavius. So when you when you see that decimal point there, the, my, my first thought was, no, it can't really be a decimal point. He's just using it as a placeholder to do something else. But the more I looked into it, and the more I found out what else. Bianchini had done, sure enough, he has a full-fledged system of decimal fractional numeration. It happens to look precisely the same, and it's in exactly the same context as Clavius. Now, we're pretty sure, in fact, it's, it's basically a certainty that Clavius would have known about Bianchini's work. So we may have here another example of what you might refer to as plagiarism, but it's probably not an accurate term. So the true story is that the decimal point and decimal fractional notation actually started 150 years earlier in the late medieval period uh, with the work of Bianchini. Clavius found it, brought it forward 150 years, and that's where it started to develop into the story we have today.
0: Now that's uh, absolutely fascinating, and as a librarian, I'm glad you were digging around in uh, the Special Collections archives. It's always, always good to have people using using that. Uh, I I was wondering, is there something about astronomy or the work that astronomers were doing that made it so that they were going to be more likely to be the ones who end up coming up with decimal fractional notation?
1: Oh oh yeah, how long have you got? Um, (laughs) um, I've I've spent my career doing research on ancient uh, astronomy in particular. And it all comes down to trigonometry. Trigonometry is the most important mathematical subject that has ever existed. Um, and I don't exaggerate. <laughs> um, the reason. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I got it. Uh, what about just basic arithmetic? Uh... <laughs> we, learned, we, we invented arithmetic in order to do trigonometry. Um, <laughs> I mean, trigono- the reason I say trigonometry is so important is that it brings the ge- geometry and arithmetic together. The ancient astronomers wanted to try to control the heavens around them. They were the first people doing something you might call science, predicting a position of a planet, predicting an eclipse, something like this. Well, the Greeks had geometric models for, predict, for, uh, for modeling the motions of these planets, but they didn't have the mathematical tools to be able to turn that into a quantitative prediction. And it was people like Hipparchus of Rhodes and Ptolemy, uh, Claudius Ptolemy, who invented trigonometry precisely to do that, to allow you to take a geometric model of a situation and then make a prediction based on it.
0: So that is, that's a, a great, a great you know, uh, trigonometry was never my favorite subject. This is, this is just hard to hear that it's this important. Um, <laughs> I'm so, <sorry. laughs> so that's a great argument for trigonometry. Uh, but what is it about trigonometry and then uh, astronomers that actually probably would have led to them thinking, with decimal fractional notation.
1: Mm, Okay. Well, in fact, for for most of astronomy's history, uh, they didn't use decimal arithmetic. It was uh, was in base 60. And there's a whole long story behind that. Um, The ancient Babylonian mathematicians and astronomers um, had an alternating base system between base 10 and base 6. It probably goes back to some metrological things that go back 4,000 years. Um, and after, as time went on, the 10s and 6s combined, and we ended up with a base system of 60. And of course, it's completely crazy to measure anything in base 60. Uh, by the way, what time is it? <laughs> um, <laughs> so in fact, um, that Babylonian system found its way to Greece and found its way to medieval Islam and into Europe. And it became the system of arithmetic that was just used in astronomy. It isn't the most efficient, but it's the system that was used and that everyone learned in universities. So the the switch to decimals, you would think to us would be normal because we are so accustomed to it. It goes back to when we were very young. But in fact, a lot of the notions we learned when we were very young are historically rich and are not necessarily obvious. Um, so, in fact, it took astronomers more than a millennium to convert to base 10. Uh, they didn't feel that there was any reason to switch. The question never arose until Bianchini and his friends in the 15th century. So
0: how do you th- think that this story ended up getting lost? Because uh, Clavius?
1: Clavius. Clavius.
0: Because yeah. yep. Clavius clearly knew about Bian- Bianchini's work. Mm-hmm. Uh, like it's It seems pretty clear that that's true. So at that point, other uh other astronomers probably and maybe some other uh learned scholars probably also knew that clavius's work was not clavius's work first mm-hmm. uh so where along the line do you think that we ended up losing that connection
1: uh well there's probably a couple of things going on there first of all um a lot of scientists what we would call today scientists in the mid in the 15th 16th century they were part of a tradition of humanists. Um, and this started actually in the late 14th century, where there was a, an attempt to return to the wisdom of the ancient classics. So if you're reading Bianchini, for instance, uh, which I do almost every day, uh, it's my favorite thing, <laughs> um, we know that he had Arabic works on his shelves, that he was getting a lot of his wisdom from, from the Middle East. But he would never quote it. It wasn't part of the tradition. You quoted the ancient classics. And Clavius is one of the last of these humanists. When you look at his works, he's not citing the way we do today. He is connecting his work through the names he mentions back to the wisdom of the ancients. And so you know, Clavius isn't all that forthcoming. None of them were about precisely who they were relying upon. You have to infer that through various smaller clues. The other thing is that we tend in the history of math to, and here I'm admitting a failing of my entire discipline, um, to concentrate on what what are known uh, affectionately as the great men. We know about Newton. There's there's enough research about Isaac Newton to fill this room up to the top. Uh, We know about Leibniz. We know about Galileo. Uh, And researchers tend to get attracted to these big names. After all, that's how you become sort of a big name, is if you discover something about someone big. From the 15th century, that person is Reggio Montanus. You can find all sorts of stuff about him. But the problem is, everybody's studying Reggio Montanus. There were other figures on this that we would call on the second tier, of which Bianchini would have been one of them. Nobody's pay- Well, I mean, that's too strong. I don't want to say nobody's paying attention. People are. But we do have a tendency to get blinded by the bright lights.
0: So that... Um, partially answers a little bit of this next question, but it's it's a question that I want to dig a little bit deeper into. Uh, so this the theme of this episode is truthiness, and we've already effectively like back checked the common story of Galois. You just shared another time where we have this common story that it's that's not giving us the the whole truth. And I was wondering if you could, uh, as as someone who you know is a historian on these things, if you could uh, talk a little bit more about what this story and what the way we deal with Galois story tells us about how we think about mathematical history.
1: Oh boy, (laughs) okay. Um, That could take me for a very long time and I have to think carefully about this. There are lots of different histories. I mean you folk, I'm from Canada but uh, and believe me, we're just as guilty of this. You, you're probably all painfully aware these days that the news you see and the news you take in is affected very much by your own point of view, um, and that has become very, very clear in recent history and politics. It's true in everything. It's just part of being human. Um, In the early 20th century, historians of mathematics were looking at these ancient and medieval texts and they didn't realize how much of what they were seeing in the text was an effect of who they were and the mathematics that they'd been trained to do. They were looking, for instance, and I want you all to look this up afterwards, at book two of Euclid's Elements and thinking that it was algebra in disguise. Well, that's what it looks like to you if you're trained as a mathematician and you're trained in that culture. We now understand that if we, if our, if we had taken that point of view back to Euclid, um, Euclid would not have recognized what you were talking about. There was a very different understanding about these sorts of things uh, in ancient times. Uh, We are in the same position today. We are human beings with a whole series of preconceptions and understandings today, many of which we do not recognize ourselves. And this is what gives me hope for the future, that uh, history of math is one of those disciplines that will have a life that goes on forever. The The historical documents aren't changing, but we are changing. And so we have to keep reinterpreting the mathematics in order to try to get past our own glasses.
0: Glenn, thank you so much for joining us
1: on Relatively Prime. No problem. Thank you.
0: Okay, so now we're going to play a little game. And this is the part where people in the audience get to participate. So uh, we're going to play three rounds of two lies and one truth. I know it's usually the other way around, but I thought this would be more fun. Uh, So if I'm going to need three total volunteers, uh, and remember, your voice will be recorded and this will be released. So uh, by uh, coming up on mic, you are agreeing to that. Uh, So are there three people out there who would be willing to try this? Okay, I'll take you, you, and you. Okay, so I guess you're up first. Come on up. Okay, so I'm going to give you three statements, and you just have to tell me which one is the truth. Okay. So a student arrives late to class and, and sees some problems on the board and thinks them homework. Little did they know, they were instead illustrations by the professor of open problems. The student ends up solving the problems and turning them in to the shock of their professor, leading to their homework getting published for the rest of the world to see. So that's statement one. Uh, Statement two, in the most literal example of the truth hitting someone in the head, an apple's impact on the cranium provided Isaac Newton with the necessary inspiration to develop the theory of gravity. And statement number three, when in primary school, Gauss's very mean teacher set to his class the task of summing all the numbers from 1 to 100 together on slates. In just minutes, the mathematical prodigy Gauss completed the task not by simple addition, but by developing the finite summation formula n times n plus 1 all over 2. So of those three statements, which one is the truth? Okay, I've heard all of them before, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, in some context. I think the Gauss one is true. That's the one. I am very sorry, but that is not the correct answer. And also, I'm very sorry, I forgot to ask your name, could you please? Oh yes, hi, I'm Hannah. Hello Hannah. Uh, Even though you you did not get it correct, here are your prizes, because those are really hard. I'm now going to tell the truth of these statements. Let's start with the false statements first. So Newton did claim that noticing that an apple always fell in a path perpendicular to the ground was a part of the inspiration behind the theory of gravity. There's no evidence that it ever hit him in the head. Sorry. Uh, And for the Gauss story, while there is plenty of reason to believe that Gauss was a prodigy, and that a biography published a year after his death does include a story where Gauss did quickly sum up a series, there is absolutely no evidence that it was 1 to 100 or that he derived the actual formula. And specifically, slates are like, yay big, y'all. That would be the meanest teacher ever. You literally could not do that work on the slate. Uh, So now the true one. When George Danzig was in college, he arrived late for a graduate statistics class and found two problems on the board. Danzig thought that they were homework problems, so he wrote them down and solved them, except they weren't. They were examples the professor provided of unsolved problems in statistics. A few weeks later, Danzig learned this when his professor informed him he had written up one of those solutions for publication. He also later received co-authorship on a publication for the other problem as well. Uh, the part of the legend where the student was immediately offered a professorship based on the quality of the work, that part's not true. By the way, this is the only math legend that I know of that's actually in Snopes. <laughs> hey, Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you. Come on up. Okay, if you could introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Are you ready to play this game? Yes. Okay. So... First statement, due to its eternal beauty, the Greeks used the golden ratio to define the proportions used in the construction of the Parthenon. Statement number two, there were women, or there were no women awarded either of the two biggest mathematical awards, the Fields Medal or the Abel Prize until 2014. And the third statement, there is no Nobel Prize for mathematics because Alfred Nobel's wife Cheated on him with a mathematician, and due to this, he always hated them. Okay, so I think the second
1: one 's the truth.
0: it yeah. is, and it's also very, very sad uh, and undeserved and we need to look at ourselves and uh, abolish the patriarchy. Right, thank thank you, you very much yes, uh, I will of course tell the story of the uh, of everything. Uh, Maryam Mirzakhani won the Fields Medal in 2014, and just last year, Karen Ullebeck won the Abel Prize. As far as I can tell, no woman has ever been awarded the Wolf Prize. Uh, So as far as the false ones, uh, there is no Nobel Prize for mathematics. We all know this, uh, but it's not because uh, Alfred Nobel's wife cheated on him, uh, because Alfred Nobel never married. (laughs) Don't know where that story came from. Uh, And as far as the golden ratio, uh, that story actually comes from 1959 when Disney released a short animation called Donald in Math Magic Land about the beauty of mathematics. It was a huge hit and was a staple in US classrooms for years. Nine minutes of the cartoon, you can watch this on YouTube, uh, nine minutes into the cartoon, Donald learns that the Parthenon was deliberately built to the proportions of the golden, golden ratio as was the Notre Dame Cathedral, a bunch of other structures. I can't do a Donald Duck voice, I'm sorry, but says, boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, And since it came from Walt Disney, everyone assumed it was true, except it wasn't. Uh, And uh, this is a little bit of editorializing from uh, Rob Eastaway. Disney was using the same artistic license that he used in all of his adaptations of traditional stories. Okay, so we have one more, and if you can come on up. Hi, I'm Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Uh, And this one, uh, actually, maybe uh, you're going to have to step back down because this is going to be a visual one. Uh, And which of these three pictures represents a single published mathematician? Okay, just going to pop back in here for a second because this is a podcast and you can't see what Catherine was looking at. So there was a slide being shown to the audience with three pictures. One A continental mid enlightenment profile portrait, which has the words Legendre written on it. Then in the middle, there was a very classical picture of what appears to be someone from around the Greek era holding a slate with a compass that definitely seems to say Euclid on the bottom. And then on the right, a more modern picture of Seven people, all standing around outside of a door. And it appears to be from, say, around the 1930s or 40s. Okay, so now that you have those in your head, we can go back to the live recording. And once you are ready, you can come on up. Uh, Oh, uh, by the way, I can even tell you which mathematicians they're supposed to be. Legendre? Euclid, and Bourbaki. <laughs> Not supposed to help.
1: <laughs> okay, I feel like this may be obvious, but I'm probably totally wrong. Euclid?
0: I am very, very sorry, but no, that picture of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven people is actually the picture of a single published mathematician named Nicholas Bourbaki. Uh, who very famously was actually the pen name of a group of mathematicians that started in France. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I bring this up because those first two pictures were used in mathematical texts for centuries to represent Legendre and Euclid. So that picture on the left is French politician Louis, Legendre, and the person in the middle is Euclid of Megara, I believe. If you want to see actual pictures, this is, oh, come on, the only picture that we have of Legendre. (laughs) It's a caricature, and I don't blame them for using the wrong picture. (laughs) I don't think that you're going to, this would just scare people. Uh, And this is Euclid of Alexandria, the Euclid that we all think of as being, you know, the father of uh, geometry, but had the exact same sort of thoughts about plagiarism and copyright that we were talking about earlier. And uh, there's a pretty decent chance that uh, most of that was borrowed work, at least from my understanding. Uh, So I want to thank everybody so much uh, for coming and listening to this live episode of Relatively Prime. And I will close this, as I always do by wishing y'all a math month, y'all. And that is all the time we have for this live episode of Relatively Prime. I wanted to thank everybody who played the game, my guest, Glenn Van Brumlin, Tony Rothman for an amazing Galois article that I was able to use to make the Galois story as well as the AMS and the MAA for the joint mathematics meetings where I recorded this in Denver. And once again, Denver is on occupied land of the Arapaho and Cheyenne nations. It's taken from them in the Sand Creek Massacre and Colorado is also the current headquarters of the Southern Ute and Mountain Ute tribes. And I am recording this on the occupied land of the Anishinabeg and Wyandot tribes. The music in this episode was from Lowercase N and Stephen O'Brien, and I want to thank them so much for the use of it. I also want to thank, and of course, most of all, my patrons on Patreon could not make this show without your help. Seriously, I couldn't, and y'all are amazing. If you want to support the show like that, you can head on over to patreon.com slash relprime or relprime.com slash support. And that is just about it now for these credits, except for this one really important part. What I tell you, that Relatively Prime is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Share it Alike license. So you can please feel free to use what you heard here, as long as you say that it came from Relatively Prime and you share it in the same way that I did. And even though I am about to repeat myself, Have a math-erific month, y'all.